Hello, you are watching and listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening and watching the uh, live stream or listening to the podcast of Understanding Christianity. Uh, recently, there's been a lot of discussion between um, Leighton Flowers and Dr. James White regarding the early church with views of Clement and um, Augustine and Manichaeanism and all of these different issues on what the early church fathers believed regarding election and free will and things of that nature. And I will let those two discuss those issues, especially when it comes to church history. I know a little bit about church history, but I am not a, uh, a scholar in church history. And so what I want to do on this uh, podcast today is to just talk about some of the fatal flaws of the provisionist theology. Many of you have been listening to me over the past five years, and one of the reasons you listen to Understanding Christianity is because of our interactions with traditional Southern Baptist provisionism, uh, the non-Calvinistic view of soteriology that Leighton Flowers and others um, espouse. And it seems like during this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, he's been very prolific in putting things out almost every day. And, I, and I'm not going to so much interact with Leighton Flowers per se, as I'm going to interact with some of the, the views of provisionist theology. And as you listen to their uh, Soteriology 101, as you interact on Facebook, as you read a lot of the provisionist uh, theology in their writings and, and all of their YouTube clips, uh, there's a lot of different things that they believe that are in, in contrast to uh, Reformed theology. And so what, what I want to do is I just want to give some quotes here. And I've got this, I've got two things set up here. So I'll be reading off of, uh, off of this thing and then hopefully looking here at the screen. Um, but let me just kind of tell you what the provisionist uh, denies. Uh, what does Leighton Flowers and those who hold to provisionism or provisionalism or whatever you want to call it, traditional Southern Baptist theology, what do they deny? Okay, so what is the main thing that they have an argument against us? So I will just give you a clear statement of what they've said. God chooses individuals for salvation for no apparent reason, i.e. it's arbitrary, and then effectually changes a sinner's nature so that they will believe in Jesus. Okay, so, they, so they deny that. Uh, what they affirm, so when I get, I'll get back to what they deny here in just a moment, but what they affirm is that sinful humans have the ability to respond positively to God's appeal to be saved. They can admit that they can't save themselves, and then once you admit that you can't save yourself, God graciously saves you as a result of your meeting the conditions of faith. Okay, so th there's a huge difference between the understanding of the provisionist theology as well as um, how we understand salvation. Uh, so there are some categorical denials. So I just want to give five, <laughs> five categorical denials of the, the provisionists or the traditional Southern Baptist non-Calvinists. Number one, they obviously deny total inability. Um, they believe that ought means can. So when the Bible teaches that we can or that we should repent and believe, that means that we have the ability to do so. So all of the imperative commands you see in the Bible, repent, believe, trust, receive, all those commands that are given, there's the assumption that we in and of ourselves have the ability to respond positively to those appeals in and of ourselves. There, there's nothing fundamentally in our nature from Adam's fall that has rendered us incapable morally of repenting and believing. So that's, that's categorical denial number one. They deny total inability. Number two, they deny unconditional individual election to salvation. Uh, they hold to not traditional Arminian foreseen faith, but they do hold to what's called a corporate view of election. So they hold to a, a corporate view of election, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And one of the third, this is probably a, maybe a sub point, not, not a whole point in and of itself, and I've dealt with this on other podcasts. 
but they really have a weird view of um, conversion. Basically, what they believe is that basically you just have to admit that you're incapable of saving yourselves. If you just admit that you're a sinner, then you can be saved. Uh, you very rarely hear an emphasis upon repentance, uh, on lordship, um, merely confessing your need to be saved. They don't really talk about the need for a, a deep conversion within the heart that God brings about that actually changes your nature to go from being a sinner to freely coming to faith in Christ because that moral inability has been overcome. So it's really related to the, the idea of total inability, but it's really a truncated view of conversion. Um, and then here's another one that I've been noticing lately that I maybe haven't addressed on other podcasts, and that is um, what they believe sends you to hell is not your necessarily sin per se, but what sends you to hell is that um, you rejected Jesus. And so they've said things like, um, you're not accountable for not meeting the moral law of God. That's not what sends you to hell for failing to adhere to the moral law of God. God, what sends you to hell is you didn't believe in Jesus who fulfilled that moral law for you. In other words, what sends you to hell is your refusal to believe in Jesus, not anything related to original sin or unbelief that comes from original sin. Um, we in the Reformed tradition say what sends a person to hell is sin. We are born sinful with original sin from Adam. We commit individual sins that we will be held accountable for at the day of judgment where you will be judged for sins that you did in the body. You are sent to hell for failure to uphold the moral law of God. And so, yes, you do go to hell because you re refuse to believe in Jesus, but that's secondary to the fact that what sends you to hell is sin. And this leads to the fifth view. And so the question then becomes, okay, if you go to hell because you refuse to believe in Jesus, that, that leaves a question. What about those who've never heard? and have the opportunity to actually hear the gospel and then reject Jesus? Uh, do they go to hell for rejecting something that they actually never had a chance to hear and reject? And so what they would say is that those that have never heard, the unreached people that have never heard, uh, they, have, they don't have the information about Jesus. They don't have the facts of the gospel, but they can respond positively to the light of conscience within and they can respond positively to nature. So they have the inherent ability to respond positively uh, to whatever light they have been given, whether they know about Jesus or not. And so those are five issues that I think would sum up some of the major theological differences in the provisionism theology. So let's just first of all talk about uh, a denial of total inability. Obviously, this is where we've camped out a lot of times, so let me just get my Bible out here. Um, John 6, 44, we've gone to this many, many times before. Let's just hear Jesus' words in John 6, 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, you go down to verse 65, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Um, this, is a, this is an inability. No one has the power. No one has the ability to come to believe in Jesus unless God does that work of drawing them. So right there, Jesus speaks about a moral inability that you can't come to Christ unless the Father does this work in you. And I've heard them say something like, unless it's been granted. And what they believe granted means is God grants you the opportunity. God grants you the, um, the, the opportunity to repent and believe. Not that God actually grants you the actual faith to come. No one can come. No one has the power to come in and of themselves unless God draws that person, unless God grants that person. They have used that drawing or that granting as merely an opportunity to use your free will once God kind of draws or woos you. Uh, they don't see granting the way that the word is actually used in the Bible of actually granting the actual repentance and faith. Uh, so for example, um, in Philippians chapter 1, let me just turn there real, real quick. In Philippians chapter 1, Verse, I think it's verse 29. Um, yeah, for it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted for you to believe. Again, they, they look at granted as God grants you an opportunity to use your free will to believe, not that God actually grants the faith as a gift. So we in the Reformed view would say, no, you are totally unable to come to faith in Christ because of deadness and sin, because of original guilt, because you are morally and spiritually unable to do so, so God has to grant the faith. God has to grant you to come. And that granting is an actual act of God whereby He actually gives you the faith to come. It's infallibly um, going to happen. God's going to grant his elective faith to come, not just merely granting you an opportunity to use your free will or not use your or, or use your free will to to choose to come or not to come. If God just merely grants the opportunity, uh, we don't view the the language there in the Bible as granting an opportunity. It's actually God does the work of granting you the repentance and faith. Now, another place that we've dealt with, and I know I'm going pretty quickly because you can go to other podcasts and listen to this, but obviously another place that teaches inability is Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 6 through 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, you cannot submit to God's law. What does God's law say to do? Repent and believe. Again, any imperative that you have in the Bible that we're supposed to do is called God's law. And we are supposed to, we are commanded to repent and believe. And we can't. We can't repent and believe. We can't please God. There's a moral and spiritual inability that renders us unable to do so. And so... They assume that when you hear a command like repent or believe or trust, that there's an inherent ability to do so, that you can in and of yourself respond positively when that appeal is made to repent and believe. So ought again means can. If you ought to do something, then you must have the ability to do so. And we would say, no, yes, you ought to repent and believe. That's a command, but you can't because of Adam's sin that you've inherited, because of moral and spiritual inability, because of spiritual depravity, because of deadness, you can't repent and believe, so God has to grant that to you. God has to draw you. God has to make you alive. God has to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so those things have to happen by God in order for you to come. Now, one of the things that is very interesting as I was listening to a recent um, YouTube clip is that the provisionists confuse or conflate election with salvation or election with conversion. They seem to, to confuse those two. And we in the Reformed tradition make a distinction between election and salvation. Often in the confessions, it talks about being elect unto salvation. Uh, so all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so how is anybody saved? Regardless of what view you hold to, whether you're an Arminian or whether you're a traditional Southern Baptist or whether you're, you're a Calvinist, how is anybody saved? Okay, the Bible is very clear. You have to repent and believe. You have to call upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The conditions for salvation are repentance and faith. Nobody is saved without repenting and believing. Okay, that's conversion repenting and believing. That's not the same thing as election. Okay? Election is God's activity. God is the one that chooses. God is the one who elects and chooses. So there's a confusion of categories here. Um, election is what, what Leighton Flowers would say, or predestination or election or God's choosing is conditioned but upon us freely choosing Christ. So he would say something like, sinners are saved unconditionally as to their morality of whether being good or bad. So God doesn't save based upon whether a person's good or bad. But God does save based upon their faith. And we would say, in a sense, we agree with that. But we're, you're confusing the categories. Yes, we're saved by faith, but we're not elected by faith. Okay? We're justified by faith, but we're not elected by faith. We as Reformed see two categories okay, that the Bible clearly teaches. God has an eternal immutable decree 
to elect or predestine certain individuals before the foundation of the world to be saved. Okay, so there are no conditions for God to elect sinners before time. So it's the good pleasure of God's will that God chose to save whom he's going to save, and that's God's choice. But what Leighton Flowers and others do is they conflate election with conversion. Okay, and again, we would agree that there are conditions that have to be met in order to be saved. What are those conditions? Repentance and faith. Those are responses done by the sinner. Those are the, the actions of a sinner, of a human, of one that actually freely repents and believes. God doesn't repent for you. God doesn't believe for you. But again, as we said, because of total inability, you don't have the ability to repent and believe unless God first grants you those gifts. And he does that through effectual calling and regeneration. And so we would say the condition for salvation or the condition for justification, I don't know if I want to say justification per se because it's still on account of Christ, but let's just say the condition for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, is repentance and faith. But there are no conditions for God to elect sinners before time. And so there's a confusion there of, of election and salvation that he seems to make. And so what he understands and what the provisionist view is, is, is corporate election. Okay. Now, I want to draw your attention to a podcast that I did a few years ago, and I just recently put it on Understanding Christianity Again, updated this week, where I go through the history of corporate election in Southern Baptist life, tracing it all the way back to Karl Barth in the 1940s, who I think influenced Herschel Hobbes in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And that Herschel Hobbes view of election, corporate election, is kind of what the traditional Southern Baptist, non-Calvinist provisionists have adopted. And so let me just... Um, give you some of the, the wording that they use upon election. So the question that Leighton Flowers and others would ask is, okay, how do you become elect? How do you become elect? Now notice, notice the wording there, just in the question. How do you become one of the elect? And again, they, they focus on the, the noun, elect, more so on the verb, God electing. The way the question's even framed is emphasizing the, 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 the power of human free will. What must I do to become elect? Now, that's, a, that's an interesting question because in the Bible, you hear the words, what must I do to be saved? Remember the Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? And then Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay, again, that's the, the condition for salvation. What must I do to be saved? You repent and believe. Okay, but the question, what must I do to become elect? Nowhere in the Bible does it give a condition of what you must do in order to become elect. That's just not the language the Bible uses. What they would see is um, it's something you must do in order to meet the conditions so that you can become one of the elect. The biblical question that, that I think you should ask that the Bible answers is, how or on what basis does God elect sinners? Okay, so the focus is on God. God is the one who's actively doing the election. It's a verb. God chooses. God predestines. It starts with God. The question is, on what basis does God do what God does? Not, how do I meet a condition to be in on something that God has done or God has, has chosen. There, there's even the way the question's phrased is it shows the tendency to, to focus more on human free will than upon God's sovereignty. So Leighton Flowers would say when you confess your inability to save yourself, then you meet the conditions to become one of the elect. So when you meet the conditions of repentance and faith, then you've met the condition to become one of the elect. Again, it's a confusing of categories. When you meet the conditions of repentance and faith, you meet the conditions of what it means to be saved. And again, repentance and faith are given to you as a gift. But the conditions for election are not repentance and faith or merely admitting. Again, there's confusion between meeting conditions for election and meeting conditions for salvation. And he seems to confuse those two issues. Now, in their view, let's talk about the corporate view of election. 
predestination in their view. This goes back to Ephesians 1. So let's just go there. Let's read it now, just so we have the context. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 and following. Ephesians 1, 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. Again, I want you to notice the active words there that God's the one doing the choosing. God's the one doing the predestination. Okay, So in their view, in the corporate view of election, predestination is not God's active choice before time to actually choose individuals to salvation, to be holy and blameless before Him. What predestination is, is... God's choice of the destination of those who will freely believe. So it's more of a plan. God chooses the plan. God chooses the destination. God chooses what will happen to a person if they meet the conditions of repentance and faith. So if you place your faith in Jesus, you get in on the plan that God predestined. So there's no individual predestination to salvation. It's more of a a plan that God set up in eternity past to choose an elect group. So what they would say is, and I'm just going to quote what I think Leighton Flowers had actually said in one of his YouTube clips. This may not be verbatim, but basically something like this. God has not decided who will believe or not believe in Jesus. Instead, God decided the destination of those who believe. You see the difference? Our view says God actually did decide who will believe and not believe in Jesus. God individually chose and predestined sinners to believe or not believe in Jesus, to be saved. What they're saying is God basically decided on the destination. He says that's what the word predestination means, to the destination of those who believe. And again, this is corporate election. God chose a plan. God chose a destination. The destination is the elect group, the church, the elect. Um, But God did not choose individuals per se. And the way that you get into the plan or the way that you reach the destination that God had set out before time is that you use your libertarian free will to get into Christ by faith. You meet those conditions. So once you do that, once you believe, you've met the conditions to be among the elect. You've reached that destination by meeting the conditions. So it is a conditional election that they believe. And the conditions of election are repentance and faith. And so it's not the Arminian foreseen faith where God looks down the corridors of time and sees who will or who will not believe in him individually and then elects based upon what he sees. We can understand that view a little bit easier because there's an individual election involved in that, which we believe the Bible teaches. So our view is actually a little closer to the Arminian view because at least both the Arminian view and the Calvinist view hold an individual election. It's just more upon the basis of what God chooses. Does God choose based upon the good pleasure of his will or does God choose based upon what he sees? He's still individually choosing sinners one way or the other. In the corporate view, God's not doing that. God chose a plan. God chose a destination. God chose a group. And how do you get into that plan? How do you get into that group? How do you get to that destination? You meet the conditions. You choose. And once you choose, you are among the elect. So really, it's not God actively choosing individuals. It's more God actively choosing a plan. God doesn't actively choose your predestined individuals. He chooses a plan that sinners can get into by their own free will. And really, this is a misunderstanding of Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just talk about Ephesians chapter 1 because... um, Let's just look at the passage that we just looked at. Okay, who's the one who chooses? Even as, this is verse 4, He, that's the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us. Okay, so you have two verbs there. He chose us. He predestined us. So who's the one who's actively doing that? 
It's the Father. The Father's predestining us. He's choosing us. Okay, so the question, second question is, what's the direct object of the verb? Okay, if the main verb is God does the choosing, God does the predestining, what's the direct object? Is the direct object a plan? Is the direct object a destination? Or is the direct object a personal pronoun? Well, it's a personal pronoun. He chose us. He predestined us. It doesn't say he predestined a plan or he chose a plan or he chose a a predestinated destination. He chose us. Okay. When was the timing of this choosing? Well, he chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. So when did he choose us? before the foundation of the world. Did he choose a plan before the foundation of the world? Did he choose a destination before the foundation of the world? Did he, did, he, did he set up this destination that you could get into by your free will? No. He chose us individually before the foundation of the world. Okay, what's the result of this election? Well, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Okay, holy and blameless. Okay, He predestined us for adoption. So this election, this predestination will result in us being holy, blameless, and adopted. Okay, so what does that assume? That assumes that God viewed us as sinners in eternity past, as unholy, as blameworthy, and as outside his family in need of adoption. Okay, so God took into account in eternity past, our depravity that we could not make ourselves holy, we could not blame ourselves, make ourselves blameless, and we could not adopt ourselves into the family because of our sin. Okay, now let's be very careful with what we see here, because let's let's see what's in the text and what's not in the text. What are the conditions that a sinner has to meet? in order to be chosen or predestined. What are those conditions? Look and see if you see any conditions in God's choosing. Even as he chose... Let's just go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, are there any conditions there for God to bless us? No, it just says God blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Are there any conditions we have to meet to get blessed? Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he's blessed us in the beloved. Are there any conditions in that text that say that we have to meet? Is there anything about faith? Is there anything about our getting into a plan? Is there anything at all that's a condition for us to be elected at all there? There's not. Now, what does the text not tell us? The text does not give us any conditions that a sinner has to meet in order for God to do this. But what does the text do tell us? Okay. So one of the charges made against us is that this is an arbitrary choosing. There's no apparent reason. This is just God doing something without giving us a purpose. But the text is very clear. And it even says, according to. Okay, according to what? Why did God choose? Why did God bless? Why did God predestine? Why did God do this? Is there anything inherently within the human being that met a condition for God to do these things? What does the text explicitly tell us? It says there at the end of verse 5, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. So here's the answer. Why did God bless us? Why did God choose us? Why did God predestine us? Answer, it was according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So God did this because it brought him great pleasure to do so. God did this because it was according to his purpose and it was according to his grace. This is all God-centered and focused on God's choice in doing this. There are no conditions here for election. Paul is specifically talking about election, choosing, predestination. He gives no conditions whatsoever for us to be able to put ourselves in a position to be elected or to become one of the elect. God simply does this for 
the purpose of his glorious grace. Okay? So, what they will do is they're going to read all the way down to verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession to it, to the praise of his glory. Okay, they read all the way down to verse 13 and say, okay, here's how you become one of the elect. You become one of the elect when you hear the gospel and believe in him. When you hear the gospel and when you believe in him, then you've met the conditions of being one of the elect and you put yourself in Christ. And what they do is they look at the NIV translation there of verse 13 where it says, you were marked in him when you heard the word of truth. You were marked in him. Now, let's talk about what it means to be in Christ. What's the flow of this passage of Scripture? Theologically, grammatically, just the, the, the flow. It starts, it's Trinitarian. That's the whole point of this passage here. It's one long sentence in the Greek text. And it starts with God the Father, it moves to God the Son, and then it moves to God the Holy Spirit. And what has the Father done? The Father has chosen us, the Father has adopted us according to His purpose. What's the Son done? Jesus has redeemed us through His blood. He's lavished us with wisdom and insight. And then you get down to verse 13. What's the Holy Spirit done? The Holy Spirit has uh, been the seal. that We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay. So all these activities in this passage of Scripture are all the activities of God. Now, the one activity that you see in verse 13 is when we heard the word and we believed. Okay, so there is a human activity in this passage of Scripture. You heard and you believed. Okay, but when does the hearing and believing come? It comes all the way down in the passage of Scripture towards the very bottom. And these aren't, these aren't conditions for election. These aren't conditions for um, God choosing us. Paul is basically talking about an indicative here. When you heard the gospel, when you responded, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the question is, okay, what comes first? You're responding, you're hearing, or God's election? Okay, the, the text is very clear. God chose you before time. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross for you, but there came a point in time when you heard and you believed. Okay, why did you believe when the gospel was presented to you? The reason you believed is because you were already chosen before the foundation of the world to believe. And this is confirmed in Acts 13, uh, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What comes first grammatically in that passage? Being appointed to eternal life. Being predestined to eternal life. What happens as a result of that when the gospel comes in time to you and is presented to you? You believed. So according to the Bible, why do you believe? Why do you repent? Why do you respond? It's because you were already predestined to do so. You were already appointed to eternal life. Life. Your name was already written in the Lamb's book of life. God already set his electing love upon you before the foundation of the world. There was no condition you had to meet in order to be elected. Now, yes, there were conditions you had to meet in order to be saved, and that's repentance and belief, but repentance and belief, again, are gifts given to you. Now, one of the things that the provisionists will say is that in our view of election, this unconditional view of election, basically what God does is arbitrary. There's no apparent reason why God does what he does. Well, I reject that because God always does everything for a purpose and for a reason. It's the good pleasure of his will. It's according to the counsel of his will. God has a divine purpose in whom he chooses. Just because we're not told this in the text ultimately what God's purpose is, other than that it's his good purpose, does not mean that it's arbitrary. It doesn't mean that there's no purpose. It doesn't mean that there's no apparent reason. 
It just means to sinful humans, it may seem arbitrary. It may seem that God doesn't have a reason. But again, we're not God and we don't, we're not told the secret things of God. God does choose based upon the purpose of his will. Now, in their view, they say, okay, we have the apparent reason why you're chosen. In your view, Calvinist, you don't have any reason for why God does what he does. It's just arbitrary. But we have the reason why God does what he does. We know why God chooses you. We know why you're chosen. You're among the elect. It's because you humbled yourself and you believed. You heard and you believed. And because you used your free will to get in, you became one of the elect. So the issue here is that the corporate view of election sees God electing a plan or electing a group or electing a destination and then you getting into that plan, that destination, that group by meeting the conditions. And the conditions for you being elected are your repentance and faith. And the problem I have with this ultimately is it makes God contingent upon human responsibility, on human actions. Uh, that passage of scripture in Ephesians is very clear that God is doing all of the actions. And there's no conditions that have to be met in order for us to be elected. Again, it's a confusion of categories. There are no conditions that have to be met in order for us to be elected. God elects a verb based upon the good counsel of his pleasure and his will. Now, are there conditions that have to be met in order for us in time to receive salvation? Yes. Those conditions are repentance and faith. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You have to repent and believe in order to be saved. Okay, who's going to repent and believe? Those who are the elect, those who were appointed to eternal life, will believe. The Father's going to draw them. The Father's going to grant faith and repentance to them. Why is the Father going to grant repentance and faith to them? Because they're the elect. They've been given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. And we are morally and spiritually unable to come on our own. So God has to overcome that deadness that we inherited from Adam and grant us the ability to come. All right. Let's talk about the other issue about what sends you to hell. Okay, what you, what you hear a lot from the provisionists, and this was a shocking one the other day when I was listening to it, was you go to hell ultimately, I guess primarily, because you refuse to love the truth. Now, let's just look at this passage in 2 Thessalonians. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. God's going to come and grant you relief to those who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled about at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Okay, when Christ comes back, He's going to inflict vengeance on those who don't know God and those who did not obey the gospel. Okay, so there's those that don't know God and those who did not obey the gospel. Okay, in chapter 2 of, for, of 2 Thessalonians, it talks about the man of lawlessness that God's going to, to raise up. There's going to be a man of lawlessness at the end times. And let's just read that. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so what they would say is the reason that these people go to hell is because they refuse to love the truth. They refuse to obey the gospel. If they had just loved the truth, if they had just obeyed the gospel, then they would be saved. So they chose freely to not accept the truth. Okay. They also go to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness by men who suppress the truth. So, um, there are people that suppress the truth. There are people that don't receive the truth. And so the, the assumption from the provisionist is you have the libertarian free will to not suppress the truth 
and to accept the truth when it's presented. So when the truth of the gospel is presented to you, you can stop suppressing that anytime you want and you can choose to believe that anytime you want because you have the ability to freely respond to God's appeal to be saved. Okay, now the context here of 2 Thessalonians when you read the full context is that God sends a strong delusion. So the reason that they're believing what is false is because God is doing that delusion during the end times. Now, maybe there's an assumption there that if God didn't send the delusion, they would still have the ability to believe the truth. And so the question then becomes, okay, again, it goes back to a denial of total inability and actually more original sin, really. Can rebel sinners who are fallen in Adam and inherited original sin, can they just flip a switch and unsuppress the truth? And can they flip a switch and believe the truth without God's sovereign intervention in effectually calling them and regenerating them? And our answer from the Bible is no, they can't. Okay. God must do a internal sovereign supernatural work to overcome that deadness. The provisionist says, yeah, they can believe. They can re- believe the truth. They have the ability to, re- to believe the truth, but they're, they're choosing to reject the truth. God has given them sufficient grace to believe. Now, the sufficient grace that God gives is just the mere presentation of the gospel. So when the gospel is presented, that is the information that's needed in order for you to respond. So you have the moral and spiritual ability to respond when... The gospel is presented. So when the gospel is presented, God's appeal to be reconciled. There's nothing inherently corrupt in you that's preventing you from doing that. And so the gospel is the grace. We, along with the Arminians, would say, no, there needs to be an internal supernatural work of the Spirit to bring grace, whether that's prevenient grace in the Arminian view or whether that's sovereign grace in our view. And so... Let's get back to the question is why why is a person why does a person go to hell? Ultimately, why is a person condemned? What we believe the Bible teaches is that a person is condemned because of original sin inherited from Adam, ultimately the nature, the sin nature, and the individual sins in which you commit. Now, one of those sins that you may commit is unbelief or rejecting the gospel. But let's just assume that you never heard the gospel in the first place. You never heard about Jesus. You never had an opportunity for the gospel to be presented to you. And therefore, you never did reject it. So do you go to hell for rejecting something that you never received? Because if what sends you to hell is rejecting the gospel, what about those that have never heard the gospel? Why do they go to hell? It seems like they would get a free pass because they didn't reject the gospel. So there has to be something fundamentally Um, deep within the heart of a person that condemns them, and that is sin, the original sin inherited from Adam. And I would go a step further and say the original guilt inherited from Adam in Romans chapter 5, in addition to the actual sins that we commit that flow from that corrupt nature. And so the question then becomes, okay, what about those that have never heard? goes back to that question. If you've never heard the gospel and you never had a chance to reject the gospel, then it seems like logically then if what sends you to hell is rejecting the gospel and you've never rejected the gospel because you never heard it, then you should be able to go to heaven. This is the whole idea of um, inclusivism and exclusivism. Okay, so do the person that that live in the deep dark jungles of Africa per se that have never heard do they automatically get to go to heaven because they responded positively to the light of conscience or to the light of nature? Um, Again, Romans chapter 1, I encourage you to go back and read it. Paul basically teaches in Romans chapter 1 that the Gentiles who don't have the law of God, who don't have the oracles of God, who don't have the Old Testament, they are accountable and under God's wrath because of their pagan depravity. And we can assume that that's a person who's never heard of Jesus. Okay, so they are under God's wrath. In Romans chapter 2, he addresses the Jew. 
the Israelite, the person who does have the oracles of God, the person who does have the scriptures, a person who really has a greater sense of judgment because they had the truth and they didn't hold to it. And Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 3 is that both Jew and Gentile are under sin. Okay? And so Paul's conclusion to this is not they've lived up to the light of nature, they've lived up to their conscience. Paul's conclusion is no matter who you are, whether you're a pagan Gentile who's living in the deep, dark jungles of Africa and have never heard the gospel, or you're a self-righteous Jew that's grown up in the synagogue hearing the Bible your whole life, the problem is not the information that you either have or don't have. The problem is, is that you are under sin. You're under the enslavement of sin. That's what Paul says there. Being under sin in Romans 3.10 is being in a condition of enslavement. So even the person in the deep, dark jungles of Africa who's never heard is under sin as a dominating power. And so there are a lot of fatal flaws with the provisionistic or provisionism traditional Southern Baptist theology. So let's just recap these. Fundamentally, they deny total inability. They believe that humans have the moral capacity to basically believe or admit that they're a sinner when the truth of the gospel is presented. And again, it's basically they've truncated conversion down to merely admitting that you need to be saved. There's no inward work of supernatural grace that needs to happen to bring about true conversion, true repentance, a deep work in the soul to make a person truly come to faith in Christ. Basically, the mere presentation of the gospel is the sufficient grace needed for you to use your libertarian free will to come. And once you do that, you've met the conditions of being elected. Not the conditions for being saved, but the conditions for being elected. And so it's a corporate election. God has chosen a group. God's chosen a plan. God's chosen a destination. You get into that by using your libertarian free will and meeting the conditions of faith, thus placing yourself among one of the elect. And what sends you to hell is not so much your sin, your sin nature, your individual sins. What sends you to hell is your refusal to accept the truth, which assumes in their view that once the truth is presented, you can choose freely to accept it or reject it. You can choose to stop suppressing the truth. There's no total inability that keeps you under the bondage of sin, that keeps you enslaved to sin. You can basically believe when the gospel is presented. There's no moral or spiritual inability. And that moral and spiritual inability, that deadness, that sin, is not what sends you to hell. It's your rejection of the truth. Which leads to another question. What happens if you never had the opportunity to hear the gospel and reject Jesus? What happens to you? If you never, if what sends you to hell is rejecting the gospel and you never rejected the gospel, does that mean that you get to go to heaven based simply on the fact that you didn't reject the gospel? Or is it a different plan of salvation for the unreached peoples have never heard? And by the way, if that's the truth, that basically the people living in the deep, dark jungles, I keep saying the deep, dark jungles of Africa, those living in unreached places, if they can respond to the light of truth and conscience and nature, and there's no original sin that's rendered them guilty before God, then why in the world would you do missions? The worst thing you could do to somebody is to go tell them about Jesus, thus making them accountable, and then they reject Jesus. The best thing for you to do is to never give them an opportunity in the first place to reject Jesus. Just leave them in that state of responding positively to the light of conscience. Um, so we should just shut down all missions opportunities right now because the most unloving thing you can do is to go to a person that's already secure, that's already probably going to go to heaven based upon the, the light of conscience, and you go to them and say, there's this Jesus who's died on the cross and risen again. You must repent and believe. And they say, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I'm going to reject it. At that point, they're going to go to hell because they rejected it. But before that point, you came to them as a missionary. They probably were going to go to heaven because they were living up to the light of conscience that they had. Again, living up to the light of conscience and the light of nature, again, is a denial of inability. It's a denial of sin. Really, when it comes down to it, the, the provisionist viewpoint has a very, very uh, sub-biblical low view of human sin they don't see moral and spiritual inability. They, they, they elevate the capacities of the fallen man, and they see God more as a responsive God. He's a contingent God. God sets up plans. God sets up 
um, destinations. God graciously sets these things up for us, but ultimately he's contingent or, or your salvation's contingent upon if you take advantage of those plans that God set up. Thus the word provisionism, God provides. God provides an opportunity. God provides a potentiality. God merely provides an opportunity for you to be saved. How do you take advantage of being saved? You take advantage of that opportunity. It's not God sovereignly saving or God choosing or God ensuring that his elect will be saved. It's not God actively doing this sovereign work of grace to bring about the elect infallibly. It's more God set up a plan. God provided a way. How do you get the benefits of that way that God provided? You ultimately use your libertarian free will to get in on the plan. Now, there's a whole lot more I could be said about the provisionist viewpoint, but with all this discussion going on recently um, and these, the prolific amount of YouTube clips and, and podcasts that are coming out almost every day and twice a day, um, I felt like it was, you know, during this COVID-19 pandemic, it would be beneficial for me just to weigh in. I've weighed in the past five years. It's no surprise that I've interacted with this view. Many of you, my listeners, know this. This is why you appreciate that I'm addressing these things. And so I'm not here to cast aspersion or to disparage uh, Soteriology 101 or the provisionists. Um, I have a good relationship with those guys. I just on this podcast want to show the differences in how we uh, come to the conclusions that we do. And because provisionism is making a rise and it's on the ascendancy, uh, there's a lot of miscommunication and misunderstanding. And, and it's really kind of difficult for people to understand it. And I think a lot of Calvinists, misrepresent the provisionist view or don't want to interact with it or, or are arguing against Arminian talking points and not actually interacting with the provisionist viewpoint. So I think it's important to actually address the actual points of contention and the actual differences. And that's what I've tried to do is to just espouse their views and say, this is pretty much what they believe and this is how it's different from Reformed theology. Well, I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Hopefully you're staying safe out there. Hopefully these stay-at-home orders are lifted soon and we could get back to worshiping together in church. And um, it's been a very difficult time. I've been praying for you. Uh, God is good. God is gracious. God is sovereign. Uh, would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus?